Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fifth episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that brings you the entire world of magic finance information without implicating half the vendors in the room. MGG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, aka Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Uh, glad to be here. Looking forward to another great episode. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, we've got lots to talk about today. Why don't you break down the segments for our kind viewers? Uh, Sure. Our kind listeners (laughs) will be treated to four segments this week. Uh, First up is our top mover section. This is where we're going to take a look at all the cards that have moved the most in the past week. Then we're going to talk about what cards you and I are watching this at this point in time. So what do we think you should be buying uh, with a quick nod to what you need to be selling right now. Uh, we're going to take a peek at a legacy event from Milan that happened uh, a week ago, two weeks ago. And then we're going to finish up with our topic of the week. We're going to touch on Eternal Masters and some of the information surrounding that. So why don't we hop right in here? Uh, segment one, the cards that have moved the most this past week. James, why don't you start us off at the bottom of our list? Sure thing. So one of the uh, big movers this week was Leyline of the Void from Guild Pack, uh, moving from $22.50 to $41.50, uh, $19 change, uh, and almost an 85% increase. Travis, do you have any information on what was moving Leyline of the Void this week? Uh, I, I'm not. You know, This is the foil copy that we've seen jump, and... I- I don't get it. This one is, is kind of beyond me. Maybe it's just an old low supply of an old obscure foil uh, would be my guess. That's that's all I've got on this one. Yeah, I couldn't find anything in my research either. Listeners, if you've got uh, any info on why Leyline was moving this week, uh, give us a holler. So what's the next card, Travis? Following that is Master of Ethereum. Uh, specifically, the dual deck Elspeth versus Tetheret, Tetheret version was showing up, but really all of them have moved uh, from... From prices around the seven eight dollar range, we're seeing them in the fifteen the sixteen range right now for almost a double up. Uh, this has gotten really big recently after the Pro Tour Oath of the Gatewatch. It's replaced Etched Champion in, in the Affinity list. Etched Champion was the standard uh, three drop in that deck. Uh, was very popular for a long time. The protection from all colors, however, is uh, entirely irrelevant against the colorless Eldrazi. So it's been switched for Master of Ethereum, which gives uh, Affinity decks a much larger body with which to rumble and and put some pressure on and also block occasionally. Uh, This is a card I'm kind of excited to see here because uh, in my article last week on MTG Price, uh, behind on on the Pro Trader side, I specifically called out Master of Ethereum. So if you're reading my articles, you would have seen this one coming. Yep, that was a good pick. So... The next one on our list is Sulphurous Springs out of 9th edition in particular, but uh, many of the versions of these um, 
pain lands are on the move. Uh, this this particular version moved from two dollars to four dollars for a easy double up. And what's going on here is that the pain lands are used in Eldrazi lists as potential tri-color um, sources uh, on the basis that the two allied colors and colorless make up you know uh, three options for casting relevant Eldrazi spells. Um, and uh, you know this isn't the biggest mover amongst them, but it's still on the move because you know some of the lesser Eldrazi lists are black red focused. Yeah, and what's interesting here is it doesn't have to be black red; it can be black or red or black and red, because this provides you a land that produces, for instance, if you're mono black, it gives you a land that produces black and colorless. Uh, so there are not that many options out there for lands like this. So it does it does give them reach into multiple different color builds. Great. So what can you tell me about Amiria the Sky Ruin foils this week? Uh, well, this is one that's uh, from Zendikar. We've seen it go from about 12 to 33 for almost 200% gain. Uh, this has been a popular casual, you know, EDH type of card for a while. Uh, you know, you play a long game with this in a lot of planes, you start to reanimate some pretty disgusting threats in, in uh, EDH lists. And I know it's also been a part of this budget modern white build. I believe that they use it to reanimate Sun Titan, which then gets back Wall of Omens or Kitchen Things or what have you. So it's part of this grindy attrition list. And, you know, those those budget lists uh, rarely remain so for long if they're popular because uh, people pick up on them and start pushing the uh, some of the cheaper pieces. So this is just a foil reacting to a low supply foil reacting to a, a slow increase in demand. Yeah, I mean, anytime you have a rare or a mythic foil that's at least five years old, you've got the chance for a takeoff because the attrition rate on copies in the wild um, starts to peak um, and you get to the point where there's just not that many vendors have all that many in stock. Um, it becomes a prime target for um, a buyout-driven spike or just the, you know, the natural attrition of inventory to the point where vendors notice and can start raising their prices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, what's, uh, what's after Ameria? So we've got Retribution of the Meek from Visions. This is, uh, uh, I believe, a sorcery for two and a white that uh, buries, if you remember that terminology, <laughs> um, which means... Uh, uh, destroys all creatures and they can't be regenerated um, with a power four or greater. Um, and it's a, a really good EDH sweeper that's been flying under the radar, um, potentially some reaction here to uh, Eldrazi and casual circles uh, and so forth. Started the week around $3, finished closer to 9 for about 185% gain. Um, that's, a, that's a card that you should, you know, take a look in your bulk boxes for, take a look in your binders and maybe push them out through Puka Trade or something and capture the value while it's hot. Yeah, and this is reserve list too, if memory serves me, which is... Yeah, it's from Visions, yeah, so that makes sense. It's good for them. I wonder what percentage of our audience is younger than the term berries. <laughs> <laughs> good point. All right. So next on the list, we've got Kerr, Plosin Forest. Um, pretty much all of the editions have spiked very hard. And, you know... Travis, it's a very strange world we're living in where pain lands are spiking over fifteen dollars. Um, the forest went from three fifty to fifteen this week for about a eleven dollar gain, three hundred three hundred percent in in change. So, I mean, you must have tons of these sitting around in a bulk box somewhere. Uh, they're definitely scattered throughout my collection. I found, I think I looked for them before and found like the seventh edition and like Ice Age ones, and I just kind of set them aside because it started out with only the ninth or 10th edition ones that really spiked. But now we're seeing all of the Carplison forests start to move. 
Uh, so I have to go back through and, and, and dig them all up. Um, and I think a lot of people are going to be in the same boat, especially Ice Age. There is a lot of Ice Age out there. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, just to be clear, everybody, this is a budget replacement for Grove of the Burn Willows, and uh, it's even even better than most of the other green-red duels uh, in the green-red Eldrazi builds. And those uh, green-red Eldrazi builds have started to show up in modern, running multiple Kozilex Return, running multiple World Breaker, um, as a way to kind of go over the top of some of the the other Eldrazi decks and, and have uh, have the ability to sweep opposing Eldrazi decks when you return a Kozilex Return for free. So, um, you know, this is a great spike if you've been holding on to these, you know, Ice Age, languishing Ice Age rares for ages and ages. Go ahead and sell into the hype and uh, transfer those funds into something more exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's so many of these on the market. I can't imagine this price is sustainable. I mean, there's like 20 printings of this card or some nonsense. There's just too many. Um, Okay, following that is Gaia's Avenger. This is an Antiquities 3-drop. Uh, it's gone from 350 to $30 uh, for 750 some odd percent gain. Uh, again, it's from Antiquities. So anything from that block, Antiquities, Legends, Arabian Nights, is just is just a ticking time bomb. Uh, you know, I reached out to Sigmund, Sigfig8, over on Twitter, who is sort of my uh, in-house old school magic uh, resource. And he did not have any particular insight on this one. He said it's not a big part of the format that he's seen. So I think this might have been another targeted buyout. You know, there, there was probably seven copies on the internet, and I'm guessing somebody just snagged them all. So uh, along similar themes, when we talked about Arborea last week as one of your picks, um, I did notice that before that podcast went live, there were still three or four copies of Arborea left on TCG Player. But since the podcast went live, uh, there are only moderately played copies left on TCG. So uh, you're going to have to take that one on your shoulders, brother. Uh, I will wear that one with pride. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So the last card of the week with the biggest gain was uh, Magus of the Tabernacle uh, at a Planar Chaos. This is the um, the creature 2-6 for 3 and a white that basically uh, provides a Tabernacle uh, of Pendle Veil type effect where all creatures um, require their owners to pay one mana uh, at the start of their upkeep or sacrifice those creatures. Um, you know, it's possible anti-Eldrazi tech. Um, Corbin was streaming with it last week. It's uh, got some legs in EDH and, and casual circles. And, you know, it's from a set that's old enough that it's not that surprising for a rare that gets any amount of spotlight to go from, say, 50 cents to 4 or $5 for an 800% gain. Yeah, and I mean, nothing kills this card. You can't abrupt decay it. You can't bolt it. You can't even dismember it. And you can path it, I guess. Uh, so it's, it's extremely resilient. Um, you know, it shares its ability with the... Tabernacle at Pendrel Vale, the reserveless land that's $700 or some such nonsense. So um, it, it's an interesting card. And I kind of wonder, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at our list and I'm just realizing, I wonder if this is part of that Ameria the Sky Ruin deck too, you know, that they could both fit into that same shell. Yep. Makes sense. Okay. So let's talk about our, uh, our cards to watch this week. The, the targets uh, that we think you guys should have your eye on as, as potential acquisitions for profit. Um, I'll go first. Uh, so one of the things I've been watching is what's going on with uh, foreign uh, Battle for Zendikar booster boxes, specifically Korean and Russian editions. Um, and the reason that I've got my eye on that is that the full art foil lands in that set um, are trending in the $15 to $25 US range. 
um, already. Each of those boxes tends to have between one and three um, such lands uh, per box. Um, I opened five or six boxes in the fall and I averaged something like two and a half, um, but that may just have been lucky. Uh, the And of course, BFC has some Eldrazi staples that are going to be pretty important moving forward, like Ulamog, which I've called out as a, a potential acquisition target um, for a long-term hold. And of course, um, it also has um, the best expeditions that have been printed so far. Boy, those, so, those foil Russian uh, Ulamogs would be pretty pretty great to pull. <laughs> Yeah, and this is this is why when I buy my case of each set that comes out, I almost never get English anymore because for an extra five or ten dollars, folks, you can you can pick up a Russian or Korean box, and um, you know the foil multiplier being somewhere between three and five times for some of the the good foils can usually help you know pay for most of the box if you get even marginally lucky. And the fact that these boxes will be future sources of expeditions as well as um foil full art basics that are, you know, probably likely to settle in the the 25 to 30 dollar range down the road means that these boxes are a very very good buy at present. You know, worst case scenario, you'll you'll pop them down the road and and sell off some of the cards. Uh in the best case, you know, for your simplest transaction may be to pick them up around 120 right now. And my target would be to sell them in a year or two for about $200 for 67% gain. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, my first pick this week is, uh, is Sulphurus Springs actually, which you'll, if you're paying attention, we talked about earlier in segment one, which was cards that have moved the most recently, but that was specifically the, uh, the ninth edition version that's already doubled. I'm looking at all the other copies of Sulphurus Springs. If we, you look at Carpulson Kar- 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 Forest, uh, if you look at the, the timeline of that, you'll see that the modern border versions, like the ninth edition border, uh, spiked uh, way ahead of all the other versions. And now all the other versions are finally starting to catch up as people realize instead of paying $15 for a ninth edition, they can pay $1.50 for an Ice Age copy. We may be in for the same thing with Sulphurus Springs here, where the older border copies that are not quite as pretty uh, start to rise in price because if people need want this card they're going to buy it. they're going to buy some of them uh, they're, they're not going to argue about what it looks like and really all of the pain lands that weren't in origins are kind of getting lumped into this grouping for me there you can find old copies uh, very cheap uh, under two dollars under even a dollar sometimes for a lot of them and they're all viable because any sort of eldrazi strategy is really going to lean hard on these pain lands as, as being a, a way to make colored mana and also colorless mana. So I like all of them. I think that you can probably find them real cheap if your store has a dollar box and uh, you've got old pain lands floating around in there. I don't think you could lose by snagging these out of there. Yeah, I guess one of the interesting things here is that a lot of these lands would have to be printed as functional reprints if they were going to be introduced in in an upcoming set because they carry um, location-specific titles. So it used to be that they could just, you could, you know, every year you would be worried that they were going to throw the pain lands, you know, back into the core set like they did with Origins. Um, but they can't do that anymore because now th- there is no core set. So unless they take us back to Dominaria, they can't reprint these lands. Um, so it is possible that you would get a functional reprint with different names. Um, and that would be something to watch out for. Um, but you've probably got at least, you know, a couple of sets before that's the case since we're headed to Innistrad first. And, uh, you know, it seems like a solid pickup. Yeah. And, you know, even with the reprint, this is a card that I'm looking, you can buy it now. 
uh, as long as the Eldrazi don't get banned in what April, you know, you could see all of these triple or quadruple between now and then sell them and then not care about reprints anymore. Um, did you have uh, another card, another card you want to talk about, James, or should I just finish up with mine? Yeah, I want to hear what you have to say about Intuition. Yeah, Intuition. So, uh, you know, Eternal Masters was announced today, and we've seen a lot of reserve list cards start moving. And I went digging through legacy lists, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute. But specifically, I think Intuition is probably one of the best positioned reserve list cards right now. And you can find copies for around 20 bucks or so, which is down a little bit from where it used to be. I think this could easily hit 60 bucks uh, for 200% gain, probably about $40 a copy. This is a powerful and unique effect. If you've ever looked for something that allows you to tutor for multiple copies of the same card, your search pretty much begins and ends with intuition. Um, it's a It's been used in varying quantities in the Omnitel decks that we've seen for quite a while. And uh, it was really popular back in the survival of the fittest days. You would search for three Venge Vines um, so it's just, it's a very unique, useful effect. I think it's underpriced for a reserve list spell that's quite playable. And we haven't seen anything do anything like this in a long time. So with all the reserve list cards getting a lot of attention, I think this one is flying under the radar right now and could prove to be quite profitable. I guess one could say um, there's an outside chance that somebody figures out Hedron alignment at some point and intuition would be its best friend. Is this a plug for your deck that you've been brewing? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, it certainly wasn't planning to run intuitions, but uh, I could see how in casual circles that might be appealing. Yeah, yeah, you can dump, keep one in your hand, dump two in your graveyard, and then exile one of them. There you go. There you go. All right, so, so I, don't have an, I don't have another buy watch card, but I do have a couple of things I think people should be selling. Mm-hmm, sure. So first on my, my sell list this week is uh, Dual Lands, Revised Dual Lands, White Border Dual Lands. Um, They've experienced uh, quite the spike uh, in the last uh, 48 hours or so with the announcement of uh, Eternal Masters um, on the assumption that this uh, will somehow reinvigorate Legacy. And as we're going to talk about more in a little bit, I don't actually think that's going to happen. Um, And as as a result, I would be looking to sell uh, Revised Dual Lands into this spike uh, and and push that money into something that's a a little safer. It's entirely possible that, uh, that... you know, beta and alpha dual lands are foreign black border dual lands are going to continue to grow over time as as collector pieces. But the revised dual lands, especially some of the lesser ones, um, have largely been stagnant since about GP New Jersey in November of 2014. And as a result, I think that there are better places to be stashing your money. Um, likewise, uh, dual lands on MTGO, which were last released in the Vintage Masters edition um, that was uh one of the largest financial disasters for me ever on Magic Online um, from the perspective that they they stalled out and sat there for about a year and a half without any gains um, have suddenly spiked as well for much the same reason. Um, and for exactly the same reasons that I don't actually think legacy support is, is going to be uh, growing this year, um, I would go ahead and sell into those spikes. This is an opportunity to get out on VM, some of the key VMA specs and free up tickets to reinvest in other things. And I am absolutely um, you know, unloading something like 50 or 60 duels online this week so that uh, I can move those tickets over to something and finally be free of the curse of VMA. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, I didn't have anything... Uh new to add to this you know i was going to talk about dual lands too i'm not quite as eager to sh- start shipping them yet 
Eternal Masters was just announced, but we know we know two cards. Um, so unless there are lands in Eternal Masters that are meant to replace duels and legacy, which I think is extremely unlikely right now, uh, I think there's still some room for these to grow. Um, I don't think you have to get rid of them right now, at least in paper. Now, I know Volcanic Island and uh, I think Tundra have seen pretty fair growth right at this point, which would make those reasonable to, to pitch. I've been looking at Tropical Island specifically since I have a playset or two that I was, you know, they haven't they've moved, but they haven't moved quite enough yet for me. But I do think that uh, these are going to be cards to watch very closely and you, uh, you don't want to miss out. Um, on, on the window to get rid of these. But, and again, I, I also don't think we're going to see a, a widespread wealth of legacy support that we weren't seeing before. So these could spike in, in anticipation of Eternal Masters and then people realize there's still nowhere to actually play legacy. And we just see the whole format as a whole kind of start deflating in value. Um, all right. Yeah. Did you... Yeah. So the mo most of the advantage, the opportunity here will be related to the blue duels, uh, underground sea volcanic and, and tundra have all spiked, as you said, tropical, you know, may or may not see a spike in the near future. Um, the, the duels like, you know, Savannah and scrubland and badlands that are, you know, rarely played, um, you know, there's no re they're not going to see a spike. They're not going to see a drop. They're going to be stalled where they have been for ages. And I, I think that if you're holding a bunch of those, hoping for them to go up one day, um, you know, I would move on to greener pastures. Yeah. If, if only for the opportunity cost of sitting on a few hundred bucks in those types of cards. And I just want to take one moment to express my continued frustration with tropical Island. It's blue and green. The best color in legacy is blue and the best creature in legacy is Tarmogoyf. And it casts both of them. But for some reason, it's the cheapest blue duel, and I, I can't figure it out. Can't figure it out, James. <laughs> and and, it, and if it's not Tarmogoyf, it's Deathrite Shaman, which is you know played in in the uh, the bug builds right? um, that tend to do fairly well. I, I, so yep. Tro trop, trop lagging has trop lagging has long confused me. Yeah, it annoys the hell out of me. <laughs> All right, uh, so, go ahead. You just want to finish something? Well, now we're on to our metagame week in review. Um, there weren't any really major tournaments uh, that were uh, going on this weekend in North America, but there was a, a fairly decent-sized European tournament in Milan uh, that Star City Games was associated with. Uh, it was a legacy tournament. Nothing too exciting in the list that made top eight. There was you know, Blue-White Miracles, Gr Grixis Delver, two copies of Omni Show, a Storm list, a Dredge list, Nick Fit, and Loam, which is kind of like the usual combo suspects. Um, what really had my attention peaked was earlier in the tournament, there was some talk of a, a legacy Eldrazi deck doing well. Um, I, I don't know where it ended up. I haven't been able to find it. Um, if, if somebody's got that information, please send it my way. Um, but it, the fascinating thing here is that Eldrazi could become a fixture in legacy on the basis that they have 16 two mana lands available, available to them in the format. Um, and that might be enough power to make them uh, a relevant deck. Um, you know, still needs to put up some some finishes to justify, and I'm not convinced that Legacy is really uh, going to be a driver of card prices on the go forward. But you know, just something for people to be watching out for if they're trying to figure out whether the timing is ideal to be dumping their Aldrazi staples, which uh, so far I would still say it is. Yeah, I, I agree. At the time, it's still time to sell them, regardless. The Legacy, the Aldrazi in Legacy build, uh, I would imagine early builds have just been shoving ancient tomb and city of traders in without too much additional tweaking i wonder if this is going to start to look like the workshop decks from vintage where you see a high volume of disrupt disruption cards so like four main deck chalices maybe four thorns of amethyst um 
and you know sphere resistance cards like that to really try and slow down the game everyone else is playing and then because your mana base is so powerful it allows you to push through those you know you don't have moxes or mishra's workshop but you've got eight soul lands um and a slightly less powered format than vintage so i don't know i don't know i think that would be interesting it, it, it's also funny that uh team east west bull said they they don't, don't really focus on legacy because they can't qualify for the pro tour with it but i'd love to see their version of a blue red eldrazi list mm-hmm. uh, in legacy or, or just a blue eldrazi list because one of the reasons one of the things that limits uh playing with creatures is that you can't pitch them to force of will in general because there are very few blue creatures that are are playable in in legacy um, other than say true name nemesis. So, but pitching, uh, Eldrazi sky spawner or drowner of hope to force it will would be pretty amusing in legacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, what caught my eye the most looking through this list is, uh, I went looking for reserve list cards in the top eight. And if, I mean, obviously the mono bases are chock full of duels, right? But if you look beyond that, look outside of the mono bases, there aren't that many. Blue White Miracles, I don't think had any reserveless cards outside of the mono base. Definitely none main deck. Grixis Delver, I don't think played any. Um, the Omni Show deck played Intuition, uh, but I don't think there's anything else. Storm plays LEDs. Uh, I think the Nick Fit or the Loam deck, the Loam definitely played Mox Diamonds. So there's there's reserveless cards around, but in general, I find that they're not as prevalent in the in Legacy decks as I thought they were, aside from the mono bases. Yeah, good observation. So, so we should we should jump in now. I think on our topic of the week, Travis, and talk about the Eternal Masters announcement and all of the fallout that has ensued. Um, you know, uh, this was something that was rumored uh, upwards of four to six weeks ago. Um, I was immediately on Twitter telling people that you know I had no evidence that it was real, but that echoing that what I had said over a year and a half ago, which was that. After MM2, it occurred to me that uh, something like uh, Vintage Masters or Eternal Masters or Legacy Masters would make perfect sense as a product because even if they didn't print anything off the reserve list, which I considered unlikely, um, it did make perfect sense to take the opportunity to reprint things like Wasteland and Force of Will. And sure enough, here we are with an announcement that we're getting a set called Eternal Masters, that, that Force of Will and Wasteland are the poster children of said set. And, you know, now we've got spikes on dual lands. Um, what, what, what's your, your take on this? Yeah, well, first and foremost, Wizards never misses a chance to make me look stupid. They did it when they printed fetch lands and Cons of Tarkir, and I said they would never do that. And I've spent the last month saying that I don't, don't understand an Eternal Masters reprint or an Eternal Masters set, and here we are with it. So thanks, uh, thanks Aaron, for that one. Um, <laughs> I still, I just, we're seeing exactly what I predicted is that the reserve list cards are going to start spiking and it's not going to help anyone get in the legacy. But I mean, if their goal is just to sell cards, uh, I mean, it's, it's going to accomplish that. Hard to argue with that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is where I'm at is that um, I, I think that uh, spikes on duels are premature. There's no evidence based on the way, you know, the information we have so far that this represents uh, a re- uh, commitment on Wizards' part to Legacy as a format. And it's important that everybody remember that Wizards applied a lot of pressure over the last couple of years when Star City Games tournaments started to become a big deal and started to, you know, their streaming um, viewership started to exceed the kind of the mothership uh, GP viewings and so forth, that um, SEG was at one point uh, making 
favoring legacy over modern as modern was still kind of setting up establishing itself in between the releases of mm1 in 2013 and mm2 in 2015 and you know the legacy tournaments were you know a very popular feature um, a very popular tournament series but from wizard's perspective it doesn't really make sense to support legacy because of the reserved list it you know it's a format that's driven by cards they've agreed never to reprint and because of that even if they release something like eternal masters it's really hard to reboot the format because even if you make the rest of the cards really cheap the land base is is really the the function so if you have a deck in legacy that's worth you know anywhere from 500 to 1000 dollars um, reprinting some of the key cards in each deck might reduce the cost of that deck by say a hundred dollars, you know, four hundred dollars. If would be kind of my maximum, I would assume. If your deck is running four wastelands, that would kind of be your ideal situation with Eternal Masters that you could get those wastelands for free and get in on something. But you know, looking over the decks that do best on you know a week to week basis, things like Miracles and Delver and and Bug and so forth. I, I really don't see how the, the cost of the decks will be reduced enough that, you know, Legacy suddenly busts open as a format. And unless we see Star City Games announce that they're going to reinvigorate Legacy by running Legacy Opens, then I don't see where people are taking these new decks to run off and play. Um, in a local gaming scene where you already have a thriving Legacy community, those people already have their decks. If you're in a local gaming scene where people can't really afford legacy decks, I really don't see Eternal Masters being the the solution that suddenly makes those guys run out and spend a few hundred few hundred dollars minimum on their land base so that they can pair it with the cards they just got out of their ten dollar uh, MSRP booster packs. Right, and and this um, is a question that I, that I've received multiple times already. Is uh, people are saying, well, wait, I don't understand why are duels and and reserveless cards going up if we're seeing Eternal Masters getting reprinted? I just don't understand that connection. And what occurs here is is, it, is admittedly part of it is people rushing to buy these cards because they think the prices are going to go up. So there's some component of that. But you imagine a player who gets their hands, and we saw this with Modern Masters too, by the way, is a player is not in the format, in this case, Legacy. They start opening these packs in drafts at their local store or whatever. They see that Wastelands are coming down from 60 or 50 bucks down into the 25 to $30 range. And they go, okay, I can actually, I can trade for those. I can buy some of these. Now I can start playing Legacy. I've always wanted to build the deck. So-and-so deck looks cool. So now they start, because the, the cost of all of the other cards in the deck have decreased, these players who are now trying to build these decks get funneled into the reserve list cards, the Tundras and the Underground Seas and the Volcanic Islands. And, and now the prices go up because you have more people trying to acquire those cards than you did three weeks ago. And because we can't reprint them, the price goes up. So essentially, if you've got a $2,000 legacy deck where the prices are sort of, if you imagine, distributed more evenly through the mana base and the non-mana base, if you make the non-mana base cheaper, it just pushes everybody into getting this choke point on the mana bases and the costs of all those cards start to explode. Uh, so that that's where that's coming from. And that's what we're starting to see now. Is it sustainable? Um, it is, as James says, we're not going to see, we have no reason to believe that there's going to be more legacy being played. So the prices might kind of do this weird thing where the stuff that gets reprinted just drops the reserveless cards spike and then eventually drop because nobody's actually playing more legacy. Uh, so that, that, that's a possibility, I think, too. Well, I, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And I don't believe for a second that it was players thinking ahead based on a list they don't even have access to yet, planning out you know, the, the, um, the construction of decks that they probably don't really have an, a, a, 
an emotional hang up on. Like, I don't believe that there's a bunch of people with a kind of poster in the room that says one day legacy. And it has a list right below it that they've posted that they're going to they're going to get around to when certain things get reprinted. I just don't buy that for a second. I think all of the spikes that we saw yesterday on the announcement were speculators that had cash at the ready that went in and bought up duels on the assumption that they thought other people would perceive that the duels were going to be necessary, that legacy was getting a shot in the arm. But as somebody else said, and I can't remember who I'd I'd be quoting, but it's not a shot in the arm to legacy. It's a shot in the head, because (laughs) what I get out of this, what I get out of this is that eternal masters it is not the at the the reinvigoration of legacy it's the death knell of legacy what this is probably doing is setting up another format whether it's announced this summer or a year down the road or two years down the road that replaces legacy and eliminates the need for the reserve list entirely so we get we end up with this situation where you know you get 10 years of cards in modern 20 years of cards in let's call it eternal for the time being and and legacy is left by the wayside and then if legacy is left by the wayside other than the extremely small percentage of the magic population that plays vintage, and we're talking 1% of 1% of the player base, um, you know, who, who needs the duels anymore? Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, and you know, Rose, people dug up a Tumblr post on Rosewater's blog that said that a new constructed format is a when, not an if. But Mark Rosewater, you have to remember, thinks, also thinks on a timeline of years and decades sometimes, whereas a lot of people, reading that are thinking on a timeline of months. So Rosewater knows a new format will show up, but it could take five years, who knows. Uh, but I, you know, and that's, I was thinking about that too, is you look through these lists and the only place you're really seeing reserve list cards show up very regularly is in the mana base. You know, you have your Mox Diamonds, you have your Candelabras and what have you, but um, it, it feels like it wouldn't be that difficult to build a new format that's basically legacy minus the reserve list. Now we know that that has been modern. Like that is what Wizards has pushed us to is that modern format. But um, you know, that's that that's one one route they could go. And this could be trying to seed cards like Force of Will and Wasteland, which there aren't that many copies of there out there right now, uh, so that when they do announce this format, there is more cards and sleeves for people that want to get into that into that new format. Um, so that there's more there's more forces out there because if they announce that format today before they put these cards out there, there's just not enough supply to support the people that are going to be diving in because there's gonna be a lot of people that are going to want to play that because because picture how this plays out down the road like you can end up with an eternal masters 2 in 2018 and a 3 in 2020 and what are the goals of those sets well the goals are going to be to to sell cards and they need a format set up that can support it and they need a format that doesn't have a choke point that limits the growth of the format yeah legacy has a choke point the choke point is the reserve list if you want to have a 20-year format that is is vibrant and inclusive, it will it can never include the reserve list. So it's not the danger. People shouldn't be worried about the reserve list getting reprinted. That's not what's no. going to happen. What's going to happen is they're going to leave the, the make the reserve list completely pointless for everybody but collectors. And you know if you're holding duels and they're the good duels that you know the blue duels, you know there's a floor on those because there is collector interest in in just owning them as a piece of magic history. But if they move away from from legacy and there's a replacement format and that format gets a gp then you know those aren't cards that are going to show you the kind the kind of returns that you want to be representing there's no point in running out and buying a tundra now because it spiked yesterday and all of the value that's in that spike is is going to be attributed to the person that got in ahead of you um Whereas you could be just buying up the last remaining foil copies of Jace Friend's Prodigy and and you know 
have something to look forward to when that card peaks over $200 next year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take a moment here to address something uh, that's been consuming my Twitter timeline and my Facebook messages all day today uh, is this whole, this whole vendor leak Twitter account and the various rumors that are swirling. I'm not going to dive too deep into this because um, you know, like everyone else, I don't have a lot of information. You know, I'm reading the tweets along with you. So I, I don't have much extra to go on, uh, but I do want to focus on one component of this is there's a lot of anger over the idea that vendors are getting um, sets, knowing about sets ahead of time and possibly having lists of cards ahead of time. On the surface, this is something that it's really easy to be upset by. Oh my God, these vendors knew months ahead of time. They could make so much money, blah, blah, blah. Which is, which is a totally valid reaction. I do not blame anybody for it. But I think it's important to consider the dynamic of the relationship between Wizards and all of these vendors. When Wizards announces Eternal Masters, there are tremendous price fluctuations in the market. A lot of cards are going to drop precipitously because of the reprint, like Wasteland. And a lot of cards are going to go nuts, because, like the duels, because of well, because the reserve list. So... If you're a store, you're not holding a placer or two of these cards. Some of these guys have hundreds of copies of these. So these announcements stand to change their inventory value by thousands and thousands of dollars at the drop of a hat. That You might be saying, well, that's just a cost of business. Okay, well, fine. But uh, keep in mind that if you actually want to buy Magic cards and have a place to play, you're, the stores have to, have to survive through that. Um, and Wizards kind of tipping store owners off, especially the larger stores, if these types of things are happening, is kind of in their best interest. Wizards need these stores to survive, and they're not going to survive if they lose 10 grand worth of inventory value in a day because of a new announcement. And the the vendors are happy to hear this, and they're not they're generally generally not profiteering ahead of time based on this information. They're just trying to insulate themselves against those against those events. So it, when you Feel yourself angry that the vendors have uh, information ahead of time. Remember, first of all, that uh, it's totally legal and it's in. there's no reason that they can't do it and that it's in both Wizards' best interest and the store's best interest in order for some amount of information exchange to be occurring. Uh, and ultimately, that means it's in your best interest. So I just want to put that out there that even if these vendors are getting that information, it's not necessarily a terrible thing. Okay, so fair point. Um, you know, I'm no more naive than the next guy, um, but I will say this: if Wizards has been sharing set information for years with vendors, um, you know, whether it is a heads up as to what, you know, the the general shape of the set, the themes of the set, or even specific cards, um, you know, it is important to note that Wizards has been at at minimum disingenuous with the player base um, via their you know public PR persona because they've said for years and years that they do not interfere with the secondary market and if this has been going on then they not only do they interfere with the secondary market they sculpt it well, um, well they protect they, pro- they protect they and and defend it as you know as you're pointing out they're they're trying to make sure that their vendors stay healthy can I I'm gonna and, pause and, you there for just just a moment because. This gets repeated a lot, and I and I just want to, and I'm not I'm not arguing, but I think it's worth considering that Wizards has admitted on multiple occasions to some 
extent of either not acknowledging or not working with the secondary market. But I'm, I'm curious now about the actual language that they use, because it's possible they've said things like we don't print cards for the secondary market or we don't consider the secondary market when printing cards, which is a lie clearly because of Modern Masters and Eternal Masters. I'm not sure that what they've said so far precludes uh, notifying other actors of upcoming information. Yeah, that may be true. And I, I think that the average player, though, would would argue that the the theme of their communication over many years has been we don't pay attention to the secondary market. We don't interfere with it. We certainly don't communicate. You know, anything that we put out there when it's put out there officially is the first anybody's hearing of it. Yeah, I, I, um, I think that's the theme that's perpetuated by players. I am not convinced that that's the theme perpetuated by wizards. To some I mean, extent. one of the other... One of the other questions would be, even even if it is, and I and I agree that it's probably legal to share this kind of information ahead of time with their their business partners, um, whether they're doing it uh, fairly across the board. You know, is it mm-hmm. only the biggest vendors like Channel Fireball and Star City Games that get this information, or is it you know smaller vendors are left out of the loop, or does everybody get it um, through back channels? And what does that uh, mean about whether there's a fair playing field for say a local LGS versus a Channel Fireball or a Star City Games? There, there might be some basis for, you know, legal recourse in a civil suit it, if some members of their business partnership were left out. You know, none of us have access to, you know, the documentation uh, in terms of what the agreements are between vendors and wizards. And so it's not responsible to comment any further. But I will say this. I, I don't think anybody in the player base will be too happy to hear that that's what's going on. I don't think that anybody would want the the vendors to have an advantage in terms of, knowing what cards are coming ahead of time. And the reason for that is that as a player, you don't want to know that you're, you're going to have trouble swallowing that Star City Games sold you a card at 100 that you know last week when they knew it was going to be dropping um, based on an announcement a few weeks later. The That kind of thing represents, a, 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 I think, a fundamental breach of trust. It's one thing for vendors to guess what's coming out and make moves. It's another for them to know it but not represent that they know it and then, you know, dare the player base to act. So the, you know, from the information I have, um, the, the, it's pretty likely that some form of this thing goes on. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and how the players uh, react to this as more information becomes known. Uh, that's, um, I mean, that's, that's entirely fair. If, you know, that's sort of like buying something the day before it goes on sale. And when the employee knew damn well it was going to happen. So that that's fair. You know, if I bought a card for $100 and three days later, I found out it was getting reprinted at the rare slot of a new set, I'd be like, well, why did you, you knew and you still sold it to me. So I can respect that concern. Um, I, I don't have, I don't have a defense for it. I, I'm just saying I respect it. Uh, as for what vendors would know, I would guess it would be, I would my guess is that wizards would kind of leak it to major vendors um, but not not just Star City and Channel Fireball, but some of the other large GP grinding stores. And, you know, all of those guys, those GPs know each other. Every store owner in a GP room knows everyone, every other store owner. And they're all buddies. You know, they're all in this together. Um, and they serve different markets, so they can be friends. So that information spreads very quickly. Um, so I would imagine that most of the people that would know would be those who vend GPs with any amount of regularity. Your LGS probably doesn't know. They're not getting that information. But at the same time, how many copies of Dual Lands does your LGS have? You know, 
these, you know, an announcement like Eternal Masters isn't going to hit your your local store nearly as hard as it would hit somebody who has um, hundreds of copies of those cards lying around. Now, that doesn't mean that the few hundred dollars that that local store might stand to lose doesn't hurt. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I would expect that level of knowledge to kind of be at the GP grinder and above level. And this yeah. is not, not a defense in either direction. I'm just kind of putting it out there that that's, I think, where the band, where this information lives. Yeah, understandable. And worth pointing out that uh, prominent uh, employees of most of the major vendors have now denied participation in this. Um, the vendor gate um, Twitter account that has been spreading some of these rumors um, has suggested that somebody was actually trying to shop around the entire list of Eternal Masters looking to get 25000 for it. Mm-hmm. That would indicate that the vendors do not know exactly what's on the list. Maybe they knew that the set was coming ahead of the rest of us, but they may not have had access to the exact card list. Um, so, uh, you know, all of this is mostly rumor and conjecture at this point, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. And uh, with that, I think we'll, we'll uh, leave it to you guys to uh, ponder uh, the depths of the mm-hmm. darkest corners of magic. Yeah. The, the intrigue and the excitement. It's been it's been a wild day. I have had trouble concentrating on work given all of this. I'll tell you that much. So that's a wrap for this week, everybody. And uh, where can people find you online, Travis? Well, I am a weekly writer over at mtgprice.com. My articles go up every Wednesday for Pro Traders. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. So you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. And that brings us to the end of our fifth edition of MTG Fast Finance, folks. I've really enjoyed our time with you this week. And Travis, we'll uh, see you next week. Sounds great, James. Thanks for your time. Have a nice night.